0: Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. We're going to do it the the Texas way. Howdy. Howdy. There you go. You guys learned something from last night. It's great to be back with you again tonight. Uh, she said, again, my name is Joseph McLean. If you weren't here last night. uh, My website is catholichack.com, H-A-C-K. CatholicHack.com, where my motto is to be the donkey upon which Jesus rides today. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the handmaid of the Lord. You know, I was spending some time in adoration today with my patron saint. You guys have patron saints, right? You're Catholics, right? Catholics? Am I in the right place? (laughs) My patron saint is Saint Padre Pio. St. Padre Pio, St. Pio and I, we have a lot in common. And um, he, he found me. It wasn't the other way around. At the end of his life, he was a very heavyset man. I'm a heavy-set man. St. Padre Pio had captivating, mesmerizing eyes. <laughs> I have mesmerizing eyes. St. Padre Pio bore the wounds, the marks of our Lord, on his hands and his feet and in his side and on his shoulder. I have marks. Okay, they're stretch marks, but they're marks. St. Padre Pio was a holy man, a righteous man, a devout man, a pious man. God performed many acts of miracles through this man. He He allowed him to levitate at least on one documented occasion. People were healed through this man. Prophecies, conversions, countless stories of God's miracles through this man. And me? Well, I'm a heavyset man. But there is one more thing that I have in common with St. Padre Pio other than my stature and my marks and my mesmerizing eyes. Both Padre Pio and I have a mother who intercedes for us. Even the great saint shares the same mother as the donkey that I am. There's hope for all of us. If Our Lady will intercede for me, you are a shoe in She is the handmaid of the Lord. She is totally dedicated to the role of her son. Psalm 86 says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and take pity on me. Give thy strength to thy servant, and save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a sign of thy favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because thou, Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. Our Lord prayed that in the upper room on the night before he was arrested. On the night before he was brutally tortured. On the night before the skin from his body was ripped and his blood poured out and he was nailed to a tree or slowly... His body fluids filled his lungs and he gasped for air. With the nails nailed through the most sensitive portion of his hand, this nerve center that he had to pull on in order to lift himself up to utter any word. And he said, behold thy mother. What a gift he has given you in his handmaid. That she would be your intercessor. We are going to dive deep into this mystery tonight. Last night we spoke of patterns found in Scripture. I said there was always a a problem presented, and then immediately after comes the solution. There's another pattern that repeats itself over and over in sacred scripture. There are covenant mediators. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and finally Jesus. But unlike Jesus, all the other ones, every time they sinned, they opened wide the door to sin to come into their family and wreak havoc. And this repeats itself through all of them. Their families were utterly decimated in many cases through the sin of their fathers. Believe it or not, this will shed light on the role of the handmaid. In his book, Lord Have Mercy, Dr. Scott Hahn pointed out that the price we pay for sin is the sin itself. Said another way, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. You want to turn your heart away from God? Fine. God will give you what you want. You don't want Him in your life? Fine. He will get out of your way. You want marriage destroyed? You want life destroyed? To be decimated from its earliest point up to its oldest point? Fine. Have what you want. For God loves you so much that he is willing to allow you to send yourself to hell if that's what you want. The choice is yours. But God desires all men to be saved. He desires with all his heart that you will love him with all your heart. And because he knows that you are weak and sinful, he has stacked the deck in your favor by giving you a mother, by sending you the sacraments and his church. This is the ark that will save you. When Adam chose to save his skin and forego his soul, he killed the life of grace in his soul. He fell from that grace. He was no longer living in a state of purity, of holiness. God is all perfection. As Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 tells us, nothing unclean can enter into heaven. You can't enter into the beatific vision with mortal sin. So you must be excommunicated, in a sense, until you are purified, made holy again, and then you may re-enter that communion with God. Adam was living in his sins, and so he was cast out of the garden. To the thorns and the thistles he was sent to labor, to work the ground, breaking his back to bring forth its bread to feed his family. This was the curses of a broken covenant that Adam earned for himself and for his bride and for you and for me. but like father, like son. Adam commits a sin, and then he opens wide the door into his home for that sin to wreak havoc on his family. And so we read in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 3, "...in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of of his flock." And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is couching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Like his father, he falls into a grave sin. His father murdered the life of grace in his own soul, and now Cain commits murder, the very first recorded murder in salvation history, that of his brother. Like his father before him, God comes draws him out of the bushes, so to speak. Coaxes that conversion. You know, I've got five kids. And just last week, I went to one of my kids, and I, I saw him as my three-year-old, and he had chocolate all over his face. I looked at him, I said, Hey, Danny. Yeah, Dad. Uh, did you get into the, the brownies, buddy? No! No. Hey buddy. You're not supposed to get into the brownies before daddy does. <laughs> like father, like son. You see God is no dummy. God is no fool. He knows exactly what happens. He knew what happened to Adam and Eve. He knows what happened to Cain and Abel. But like a good father, he's come To show His mercy. Last night I said, when you hear God coming, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and you're living in sin, you hide in a bush. But when you're living in a state of grace, you rush to your Father, and you relish His presence. We fear God's judgment. But it is not His judgment that He brings. It's His mercy. God loves you. And He wishes, He desires for your salvation. And so He comes to call you to repentance. He comes to recollect you. Now, of course, you've made a terrible decision. And penance must be served. But to the contrite heart, forgiveness is always given. But to the obstinate heart, The curses are handed over. You see, we often think of excommunication as a bad thing, right? We think it's harsh when the church excommunicates people. Oh, they're just being mean, right? Are we being mean when we discipline our own children? When I send my kids off to their room? Why do we excommunicate? Is it because we don't like them? We excommunicate because they persist in their sins and they're not repentant. And we desire for them to be in full communion with us again. We desire for them to be as in love with Christ and His church as everyone else. And we cut them off from the body in hopes that they will mourn the loss, fall on their knees and repent to God. And come home again to a father with open arms and ready and waiting to run to him on the road at the first sight of him. That's the power of excommunication, it draws us to unity. Cain persisted in his sin. And so, like his father before him, he was cast out. Now, Cain feared because the family had grown so much he feared that his siblings, wherever they may be, would hunt him down and kill him, seeking the false notion of vengeance. Due to their fallen nature, they misunderstand what true justice is. So he fears and he complains to God, this punishment is too great. And God says, don't worry. To the valley of wandering you will go, I will put on you a mark. And if anyone touches you, I will hold them to an account with their very blood. So God stands in the role of protector, mediating between Cain and the family between the brothers that seemed to be always at war with one another. You see, Adam knew his wife again. And they had another son made in Adam's image and likeness. And his name was Seth. Seth, unlike Cain, was a righteous man who sought the name of God. Unfortunately, Cain does not repent that we know of. Cain, unfortunately, does not seek God's name. He seeks his own name, his own Shem. And so now the story of salvation history is broken into two lines. You have the evil line of Cain and the good and righteous line of Seth. Unfortunately, the evil line of Cain will ultimately corrupt the good line of Seth, which will lead us to the flood when God seeks to wipe out all of the corruption, saving mankind through yet another covenant mediator, that of Noah. But as salvation history tells us, these sons are always at war. The sons of Noah, they will be at odds with one another. Ham, the second oldest, will try to usurp the right of the firstborn by taking the authority in an inappropriate relationship with his very mother, to steal what belongs to his older brother, Shem. This will lead to a millennia of war between the people, between the family of God. The sons of Abraham are at war today because Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands and they fathered a child through Hagar. And so when we watch the news and read the headlines of what's going on in the Middle East and the constant posturing of Israel and Iran and the rest, we can thank Abraham and Sarah for the choices that they've made. The sons of Isaac also don't disappoint Esau and Jacob lying, cheating, plotting murder against one another to steal the right of the firstborn for love of their father. These sins they commit, they become generational. Jacob's 12 sons, constant chaos. Reuben tries to usurp the authority of his father by having an inappropriate relationship with one of his father's concubines, selling their brother into slavery perversity, drunkenness, debauchery. The sins of the father come back to haunt their children. Fathers, end it. Draw the line in the sand and say, this far and no further. My sons and daughters will not bear my sin any longer. The good news is, as God stood in the gap between Cain and the family, he has given us someone to stand in the gap between our family and the Lord, to intercede for us, to protect us, so that just maybe we'll stop the violence from one generation to the next. Because we have someone who is so totally single-minded for her son's mission, that she would follow him all the way to Calvary. The great King David, after 400 years in the land, even he, even he opens wide the door to sin and temptation in his own home. Did you know he's the only man out of all of sacred scripture to be called a man after God's own heart? Oh yeah, the only one, a man after God's own heart. You would think David was a saint. I mean, we pray the Psalms. They're so deeply intertwined into our liturgy, into our prayer life. They're so profound and beautiful. He wrote most of them. My favorite author, Dr. Scott Hahn, he likes to say, if I could repent like David, then I would sin like David too. Well, I've got the sinning part down. I don't know about the repenting part. You see, David, he had lots of sins. One of the worst ones was when he was supposed to be out in the springtime leading his army in battle, he became complacent and lazy. He liked the luxury of the palace. He sends his army off and hangs out, and there he sees this beautiful woman who just happens to be cleansing herself on top of a roof in sight of the palace. And he's the king, and he says, oh, okay. And he calls, and he takes her in an inappropriate, adulterous relationship. She conceives his child, and so David begins to plot how he will cover this up recalling her husband, Uriah, from the battlefield. One of his mighty men, his inner circle, a Gentile, by the way. He gets him drunk. He lies, he cheats, and ultimately he plots his murder, and Uriah is killed. This is the man after God's own heart? (laughs) There is no hope for us. This is the man God loves? The rudy little young man that God said, that is who is my anointed. The child in Bathsheba's womb died because of his sin. When we sin, men, we open wide the door to our family. And oh, how the devil loves to come in and consume the dust of the earth. You see, man is made of the dust of the earth, and that serpent is cursed to crawl the ground all the days of its life, consuming the dust of the earth. He is consuming you, pursuing you, seeking your destruction. And oh, how easy we make it for him when we sin. So... The family drama continues. It's like watching a soap opera on Telemundo. It's just one thing after another. You see, David had lots of wives. Always a no no in sacred scripture, by the way. Always a no no. I'll give that talk some other time. Well, one of his sons, Amnon, lusts for one of his daughters, Tamar. Tamar was a devout young woman, a righteous virgin. And Amnon takes her by force. Then after he has consumed her to his pleasure, he kicks her out in shame. Tamar's full-blooded brother, Absalom, he says, I'll take care of this. I'll go to dad. Dad's the king. He'll do the right thing. Justice will be had. He goes to his father. He pleads the case. David does nothing. You see, David is guilty of the same crime. Taking a woman that was not his. Covering it up. Hiding it. In shame. You see, David was ashamed. He felt he could not punish someone for a crime that he has committed. But see, David fell into the parental no no, the same as Eli and Samuel, prophets and priests. Both of those men did not discipline their children. An undisciplined child becomes a spoiled brat. This is the crime, or one of the many, that David commits. Two years go by of Absalom begging his father Father, please, justice, your son. Look what he has done to your daughter. David does nothing. The sin of the father destroys the children. Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He hatches a plan and he has his brother killed. Just as Cain killed Abel out in the field, so Absalom had Amnon killed out in a field. Just as Cain was cast out wandering, fleeing for his life from the family, so does Absalom flee for his life from the family because they want his head now. So this is the the story that never ends. It just keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. It seems like we never learn until a plot is hatched from one of David's generals because the general knew that his dad David longed for his son who was in exile. David mourned the loss of his son Amnon and now is doubly mourning the loss of his son Absalom. And Joab hatches a plan. He convinces a woman to go and speak to the king. 2 Samuel chapter 14, quote, Now Joab the son of Zariah, Perceived that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. And go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obscene and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your handmaid had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to part them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen against your handmaid, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal, which is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor no remnant upon the face of the earth. Now, Absalom eventually comes home, but the father won't see him. His heart gives way because this woman's words. But because he won't see his son, because he won't reconcile with his son, because he won't repent of his sin and call his son to repentance. The sin of the father continues to destroy the family. Absalom hatches a plan again, this time to steal away the kingdom from his father. He convinces a general to back him up, and they kick David out of the city, so to speak. What does Absalom do to solidify his claim to the throne? He takes the concubines that David leaves behind in his house and he sets up a tent in public and he has inappropriate relations with them in front of everyone. Why? Because as the old saying goes, he who has the king's wives is the king. Ham tried it. Reuben, the oldest of Jacob's 12 sons, tried it. Absalom is trying it, and it'll happen again in David's own family before too long. But this handmaid, this woman who was asked to pretend, she sets up for us a beautiful insight, a foreshadowing to what will become reality in the New Testament. You see, just like with Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, there is two sons. Just like in Genesis 4, one son kills the other. Just like in Genesis 4, the surviving son is cast out and then chased by the family for vengeance. Just like in Genesis 4, there is someone to intercede on his behalf in order to save his life. But what's new, is unlike in Genesis 4, it's no longer the Lord doing the work, it's a woman. It's the handmaid who is now the mediator and protector standing in the gap between the sons who always seem to be at war with one another. What did I tell you yesterday about the woman? When you see the woman in sacred scripture, that's not a mistake. It's not coincidence. That's typology. That is the Lord showing you the thread through salvation history, connecting all the dots from Genesis to Revelation. The woman, the woman, the woman. Yesterday I told you of the second good news there in Luke's gospel. When the archangel Gabriel, the burning one, says to this young virgin, you shall conceive and bear a son. This is the good news. The first good news is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and her seed will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. This is the first good news, the proto-evangelium. Because this was the word of God's redemption for mankind. That through a woman, salvation will come to mankind. That through a woman, unity in the family will be restored. So when you see woman link the dots, especially in the Gospels, Imagine what it must be like to be the mother who has to stand up for the son that murdered the other. A family with fallen nature, lusting for the living son's blood. But to be the woman in salvation history means to seek true justice, not temporary so-called relief. True justice is reconciliation. True justice is love for God. Bringing the family together again, that's true justice. We're never going to find satisfaction in an eye for an eye. That is the message that Jesus proclaimed so profoundly in the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. I can think of another story, another handmaid of the Lord, another woman who had to intercede between two sons. Bathsheba, her son Solomon, would ascend to the throne and replace King David. What's interesting is, it would be Bathsheba who would ascend with him. You see, there was a queen in the kingdom of Judah from the time of Solomon until 400 plus years later when they would be carried off in chains in exile to the Babylonian kingdom. And I don't know if you knew this, but the Davidic kingdom was the longest running kingdom in human history. You can name them all. The Chinese dynasties, Roman emperors, Persian kings, Russian czars, all of them. King David's lineage is the longest. And there will always be a queen next to his son, the king. And guess who that woman was? It was never his wife. Solomon, unfortunately, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You couldn't even be queen for a day in his kingdom. Think of the political infighting that would happen in his house when they were vying for political power and and possession of the throne. It was never the queen, or it was never his wife that was was queen. It was always his mother. And she had a title. In Hebrew, it's the Gibi Ra, the great lady, the queen mother, And so, as I said, from the time of Solomon's ascension until Jeremiah comes to tell them they are about to be hauled off in chains 400 plus years, the Gibi-Ra, the queen mother, was always the mother of the king. And her job, officially, was always to intercede on behalf of the people to the king. Her job was to make the needs of the people known to her son, the king. You're right, pure coincidence, nothing to see here. Move along. Well, one day, Solomon's brother, Adonijah, pays a visit to Bathsheba, the Gibbirah. You see, Adonijah wanted to be king. He was pretty much jealous of his brother, Solomon. But Solomon was anointed king. And so Adonijah thought, I have one shot. I have just one shot of usurping my brother's authority and taking possession of the kingdom. This is what I'll do I'm going to go visit Bathsheba, the queen mother, the Ra, and I'm going to ask her for Abishag, the Shunammite. This is a great idea. It's going to work. Because the king can never refuse his mother. The problem with the plan is Abishag the Shunammite was David's last concubine before he died. Legally, that was his wife or one of them. Again, always a no-no in Scripture, by the way. Why would he want David's last concubine? Remember the saying, he who has the king's wives is the king. If he can only get Abishag for his wife, he can go into the streets and he can raise a ruckus. Look at me, I have the king's wife. I am the king, not that guy over over there in the palace. He is a sham, I'm the real deal. I have Abishag, David's wife. So Bathsheba, when she receives this request, she says, fine. I'll ask. You see, this was all or nothing for Adonijah. Solomon was no dummy. In fact, he was the wise king of ancient history. They came from far and wide to hear the wisdom of this man. So if this backfired, pretty much it's not going to be good. This is what happened. 1 Kings chapter 2. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a throne brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my elder brother. And on his side are Abithar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me, And placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as promised. Adonijah shall be put to death this day. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehudiah, and he struck him down and he died. You see, the king can't refuse the mother. And so giving Abishag to the brother meant the brother had to die. Because he was not going to be in perpetual civil war with his family. He was going to solidify his power. If he hadn't asked for Abishag, Adonijah would have lived. He already had a shot at killing his brother and he chose to allow him to live. But this was the last straw but I want you to see the design. The king rose and bowed to the queen mother and she sits on a throne at the right hand of the king and she makes intercession for the people to the king who will not refuse her request. And if that's true for the sinful Solomon how much more for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the full of grace, the kekare Tomene, the Gibi Ra in the kingdom of God who intercedes for you, who sits at the right hand of her Son in glory right now. The woman, this woman, the king's mother, will always act as intercessor, always acting as the handmaid of the Lord, totally and 100% committed to her son, the king. She stands in the gap between the two brothers that are constantly warring with one another. I want you to see the framework. That God has placed before us. You see, when the time of the Babylonian exile was at hand, they took not just the king, but they took the queen mother too. And so the people, for 490 years after they come back, longed for a new woman, longed for a new mother a young woman, as Isaiah says in chapter 7 and 9, a young woman, a a virgin, who will bring forth another son of David to be king, to be Mashiach, Messiah, or in Greek, Christos, to be Christ. This role of the woman who is the handmaid She is the instrument of peace in the family. The instrument of reconciliation between the warring sons and daughters of God the Father. This woman would stand in the gap as intercessor to the Father on behalf of the children. She is queen. She is Gibi Ra. And as the Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 129, the New Testament, the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is unveiled in the new. Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary says to the angel, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. Do you remember that when the burning one showed up to Mary, she wasn't afraid of his appearance, It was what he said that troubled her soul. Because she was humble. As much as God tried to exalt her, she countered with humility. But she never once, not a single time, questioned the plan of God. She never once, never once thought, maybe there might be somebody better than me. She didn't find herself to be especially good. But God gave her the title of kekade tomene, the full of grace. God gave her the role to be the young woman, the virgin, who would conceive and bear a son. And she said yes. She didn't flinch. She didn't pass go or collect $200. She didn't question. She said yes. Today, the Lord has come to you and you know it. How many times today did he come to you? And how much did you question that Lord What he asked of you? Would that you say yes the next time? Or would that I say yes the next time? Maybe I can put a stop to my sins wreaking havoc in the lives of my children if I only say yes instead of no. The good news is, is like St. Padre Pio, we have the same mother. Mary truly is the handmaid of the Lord. She truly is the queen mother interceding on behalf of the sons constantly at war. Paragraph 56 of Lumen Gentium says, "'Thus Mary, a daughter of Adam, consenting to the divine word, became the mother of Jesus, the one and only mediator, embracing God's salvific will with a full heart and impeded by no sin. She devoted herself totally as handmaid to the Lord, to the person and work of her Son." under him and with him, by the grace of Almighty God, serving the mystery of redemption. Rightly, therefore, the Holy Fathers see her as used by God, not merely in a passive way, but as freely cooperating in the work of human salvation through faith and obedience. Mary is the new Eve. Only she does not intercede between Adam and the serpent. Rather, she intercedes between the son, her son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his wayward children, you and me. The wedding party. That's us. We are the wedding party in Revelation. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Anxiously awaiting our love to be united with him in all eternity. Yesterday we talked about the wedding feast at Cana. And there was the mother of Jesus and Jesus, the only two figures in the entire passage to be named. Notice the bride and groom. We don't know who they are. They're never named. They're never even mentioned. Just Mary, the woman, and Jesus, her son. And she goes to him because she knows that there's a problem, that there's a need, that the people have a need. And she goes to them, to her son. She says, they have no wine. Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Yesterday we talked about what that meant. What kind of a mother does it take because his hour is the passion, death, and resurrection. His hour is the moment when he will slowly drown to death on the cross because his lungs are filled with bodily fluids, gasping for air in agony. What kind of a mother will send her son to that? It takes an incredible mother an extraordinary woman, a woman of pure faith, a woman whose heart is the pure soil for the seed of the word of God to bring forth fruit in abundance. Think about the temptation, the agony she must have felt when Simeon said a sword would pierce her heart too in Luke chapter 2. How often she must have wanted to cry out at the foot of the cross. Take him down! Take him down! Save his life! If she would have done that, she could have saved his life, but she would have forfeited yours. Jesus says, shall I not do what my Father has sent me to do? No, I will do it, for this is why I have come. I will drink the cup my Father has given me to drink. Why? Because unless he dies, unless he is resurrected, and unless he ascends to heaven to stand before God in heaven, the Father as a lamb standing as if slain, perpetually in sacrifice until the coming consummation of the world, you have no shot at redemption. This is the role Our Lady plays as handmaid. Your reconciliation, your redemption is at stake. She fights the urge to cry out at the foot of the tree to save your life. Eve did all the talking at that tree, Mary does none. Adam was totally silent at that tree. Christ cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Adam broke his back to work the land to bring forth its bread. Christ drops sweat, blood drops from his forehead down to the earth to bring forth the Holy Eucharist that you might have life. And the handmaid is with him there the whole time, never once leaving his side, never once convincing him he should do something else. Even St. Peter, who is one of my favorite people in all of salvation history, the only guy to step out of the boat. And he says to Jesus on that fateful night, I'm willing to die for you, but you know, you can't die. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to suffer. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. I have to die. That is my mission. For love of souls, I die. I thirst for this sacrifice. Our mother never wants doubts, never wants questions, Totally, 100% committed to what her son came to do. Totally the handmaid of the Lord. She is the full of grace. She is the kekare tomene, the queen mother, the Ra. And John gives us a unique insight into her role in heaven and eternity in his Revelation, chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away by the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commands of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." All of salvation history is wrapped into that passage. If you read carefully, you'll see creation. You'll see Eden. You'll see the Annunciation. You'll see Nativity. You'll see Calvary. This dragon is the ancient serpent. This is the beast in the garden chasing a new Eve. Only he never catches her. He caught the first one, but this one, he can't. What was the first good news? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, serpent Satan, and the woman. Mary was conceived without sin, given abundant grace. What is grace? God's life. And she was full of God's life. Given the wings of the eagle to preserve her, that the dragon may never catch her. And so what happens when the dragon can't consume the woman? He doesn't get the male child and he doesn't get the woman. Who does that leave? Her offspring. Who are her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of her son, Jesus the Christ. God cursed the serpent in Genesis. On your belly you will crawl all the days of your life, consuming the dust of the earth. Man is made of dust, and so he chases you like a roaring lion trying to devour you. The good news is there is a mother, a mediator, a queen to stand in the gap and to pray for us. She is clothed in glory, as Revelation 12 tells us. She is clothed in God's glory with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, queen of heaven and earth. Like the moon reflecting the light of the sun, She reflects the light of her son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. She is so pure that only the light of her son can be seen. How about you? Does your soul magnify the Lord? I can tell you mine doesn't. My soul does not magnify the Lord. May Almighty God have mercy on me because my soul should magnify the Lord. The good news is when I come out of the confessional, my soul magnifies the Lord. God knows you. He knows who you are. He knows your struggle. That is why he has given you his mercy in the confessional. That is why he has poured out his life In the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Holy Eucharist, that you might have life and have it in great abundance. He is the Father, looking for His daughter and His son on the road. The second He sees you, He comes running to you! You can't even spit out that confession you've tried and practiced over and over and over. He falls on your neck. He puts the ring on your finger and clothes you because you were naked and ashamed. And he restores your dignity as a child of the Most High God. And although Satan stands there and accuses you before God, look what that Joe does. What a hypocrite that guy is. He goes around talking to people about God. Do you see what kind of donkey he is? Look at the way he treats his wife, his kids. You see him ignore that that poor person down the street? You see him cutting those people off in traffic? How about that short, curt language in the emails? Because he doesn't have the time to be nice. That's the voice of Satan. But you wanna know what the voice of the intercessor's like? My son. Behold, my other son, have mercy on him. Behold, my daughter, have mercy on her. And Jesus, with great joy, says, I will have mercy. You have a mother standing in heaven, whispering your name into the ear of her son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would that you would say yes to God today. Our mother truly is the first among disciples. The question is will you be second among disciples? Will you? Amen? Yeah, you guys are going to conquer the world. Let's try it again. Amen? Amen? Amen. I'm going to make Texans out of you soon. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, O most loving Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored your help, or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, we turn to you, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother, To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, do not despise our petitions, but in your mercy hear us and answer us. May Our Lady whisper your names into the ear of her Son. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.